songs that we sang that we're marching to Zion and what a, a, a beautiful hope that is, Father, that, that, that we have a destination that we're seeking. We're seeking that Beulah land. We're seeking Zion. And, and Lord, we also uh, thank you, Father, for, uh, for this, this idea that we're not seeking it, wandering on our own, but Father, it is thou great Jehovah who leads us uh, on our pilgrimage and on this journey. And Lord, we know that this world is not our home. Uh, but, Father, that we seek a, a heavenly city, Lord, the same city that Abraham and his descendants sought and followed and desired. Lord, we thank you for that. And, Lord, we would just pray today that your promise would hold true, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're continuing in Exodus, and we come to Exodus chapter 19. So let's go ahead and let's open up to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter for us. Uh, it's not a super long chapter, but it is going to be a little bit of a lengthy reading. Uh, so bear with me through that. Uh, but we're, we're coming to Exodus chapter 19. And this is a, a, an interesting passage because we really get to see the covenant that God makes with Israel here. With the people of Israel specifically. And how it is a conditional covenant. But, but it comes at a very interesting time because I don't know if you've turned on the TV lately uh, or, or gone on social media lately or turned on a radio lately. But there are a lot of people who are very much in hatred towards Israel right now. Right? If you go and you look at that, oh, it's Israel's fault what's happening here with the Gaza Strip between Israel and Palestine and all of this. But we're, we're going to come and find out uh, well, one thing that we're going to see today is, number one, why we as Christians should love Israel and why we as Christians should have a loyalty to Israel. That's not going to be the total thrust uh, today, but that is definitely going to be seen here today. And I find that interesting because it is so absolutely so relevant to what is happening today. But let's read starting in Exodus chapter 19, verse one. And it says, in the third month, the children of Israel had gone out of the land uh, of Egypt. On the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, and they had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and they had camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how you, how I have borne you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be uh, to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and he called for the elders of the people and he laid them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words to the people, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in, a, in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the Lord or the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. And tomorrow I will let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down 
upon Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself, that you do not go up to the mountain, nor touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now a hand shall touch, uh, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether uh, man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds uh, long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready, for the third day do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. And all the people were in the camp that uh, trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through the gaze gaze, to gaze at the Lord. And many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set boundaries around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, then come back, come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke with them. The first thing I want us to see here this morning is the purpose of Israel. The purpose of Israel, and this is seen, uh, first of all, in verses 1 through 8. It's what we read for Scripture reading this morning. Uh, but, but we see some interesting things specifically here, starting in verse 5. And it says in verse 5, uh, verse 5, well, actually, I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, uh, you have seen what I did to Egypt and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And it says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for the earth is mine. Now the first thing I want to point out here is that God says that he has bore them on eagle's wings. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is a really interesting concept as to what he's saying. Because uh, what it's referring to is that when the eagle goes and and, and kicks the, the little bird out of the nest, Uh, Sometimes it has trouble flying, and so the eagle will go and swoop down and and bear up its young in that way in order to go and and catch it and protect it and to save it. And what an incredible thing to think about that that literally it was as though Israel and Egypt land were free falling and about to go splat, but, but God comes and bears them on his great wings, right? And we saw that. But I want us to notice here the, 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 the wording that it uses. He says, a special treasure, or a peculiar treasure, or a special treasure. And, and above all people, above all people is what Israel is to be. 
This is a special position, and Israel would be, the, would be a chosen special nation. And this is connected all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. All the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Because in the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham that through you and through your descendants, I will bless all nations. And we're going to see one way how God blesses all nations or sought to bless all nations. But the ultimate way that he blessed all nations through the seed of Abraham, which was ultimately leading into Israel and to the Jews, was through Jesus Christ being born of the seed of Abraham. But this, this covenant here between God and Israel is, a, is one that is connected all the way back even to the Abrahamic covenant. That they would be a special people, that have a special position above all of the people. Now, it wasn't an arbitrary here, the Abrahamic covenant, which is what this one is founded upon. It, it was a choosing based on the faith of Abraham. Because it was said that Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. God appeared to Abraham and he told Abraham to go. And Abraham didn't say where, or if he did say where, God said just go. And Abraham went. He believed God. Abraham had a special faith. And we know that. Even from the story of Abraham going and taking Isaac, setting him, you know, the son of promise, setting him upon the altar. The one whom his seed would go and bless all of the nations of the earth. And God said, go, kill him. And he raises up the knife. I mean, he's ready to go and kill him. And God stops him just in the nick of time. Abraham, and God did that to test Abraham, but Abraham had an incredible amount of faith. This wasn't a, a covenant that God just went and decided to choose. Ah, you know, this Abraham guy, I like his beard. So I'm going to choose Abraham, you know? And that's why I'm going to choose Abraham. No, it was based upon Abraham's faith. Abraham had more faith than anyone else that was upon the earth. And that is important for us to go and to recognize because there is a teaching that, that God uh, basically just goes in, in like a, a, a schoolyard uh, dodgeball game, goes or kickball game. He goes and he chooses, I want you on my team and I want you on my team and I, I don't want you on my team. You can be on Satan's team and you can be on Satan's team. And, and that's not how God works. There was actual faith that Abraham had and there's actual faith that we have when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that produces then that regeneration. We're not regenerated to get our faith. We have faith, and then that regeneration comes. But he says here, for all the earth is mine. God's supremacy is not limited to Israel. God also didn't go and, and choose Israel, through even through the Abrahamic covenant, by going and saying, you know what, uh, Israel's the only nation I got, you know. Uh, these other ones, you know, they, they worship these other gods, you know. They've got Ra down in Egypt. Boy, I would sure like to have chosen Egypt because, you know, I mean, Egypt's got the Nile and, and, and it's got all these great things and look at the pyramids. Oh, God likes the pyramids. And they, he didn't have to do that. See, all the earth is God's. God is supreme. His supremacy is above every nation. It wasn't that he was limited to Israel. It was that Israel is a truly special nation. He is God of all the earth, and he is judge of every nation. Not just those who would claim the name of God. Not just those who would, would go and associate with the name of God or with the Bible. God is the God of every nation, and he is the judge of every nation. 
And he truly does judge the nations. We could go and look at that through different passages of Scripture. I believe Psalm 9 is the one that's coming to my mind uh, right there. But we're not going to take time to go into to look at that. We could also look in Daniel uh, when Darius goes and he sees the handwriting upon the wall, right? We, we've heard that phrase, the writing upon the wall. Well, that's from Scripture because God sent a hand down to go and to write uh, on the wall, which said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. And it's, and it's that they've been weighed and they've been measured and they've been found lacking or found wanting. And God judged that nation, a pagan nation, that night. The earth is the Lord's. He is the judge of the entire earth. But I want us to notice something here, that they are a special people, Israel. This means that Israel has prominence. It isn't that God doesn't have others or couldn't have chose others, but this truly makes Israel a special treasure to him. And we ought to recognize that. We ought to recognize that. But verse 6, it continues, and it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The first one is here, a kingdom of priests. Now, what does a priest do? What is a priest? Well, a priest is somebody who leads worship, is what they did was their primary focus, and made sacrifices. And then we can sum it up by saying this. A priest would go and represent the people to God. They would represent the people to God, is what they would go and do. That's what a priest would go and do. As the tribe of Levi would end up being the priests for the nation of Israel, specifically the descendants of Aaron, so Israel would be a priest to all other nations. That was the design of how God designed Israel as to how it was supposed to work. And and they would represent other nations to God, is what this means, being a nation of priests. This is why it's imperative, I think, to be on their side, right? They're they're a, a nation of priests. Now, their priesthood doesn't stay because they didn't actually obey God's word. But our theology does place Israel in a special place, realizing that God is not done with the physical people of Israel. God's design, though, was for other nations to know him through Israel. That was his desire. It wasn't that he was only going to save Israel. And that's what a lot of times people think of when they just read the Old Testament. Oh, God is just going to save Israel. Well, you you have the the pagans in Jonah when Jonah was on the boat. And he was running from God. And they all sacrificed to their gods. And then they said, hey, sleeper, get up. Maybe your God can save us. And of course, then Jonah tells them, hey, you got to throw me overboard. Because God's mad at me because I'm running from God, which, by the way, Jonah didn't know that was going to stop the storm uh, anyway, uh, or he didn't know he was going to be swallowed by a fish. He he thought it was going to stop the storm, but but he didn't know he was going to be swallowed by a fish. He was actually trying to commit suicide because he wanted to run from God so bad, is what Jonah was doing. But those people, they ended up going and worshiping God because they saw the power of God, even though Jonah wasn't doing a good job of what he should have been doing. That was the idea that that God actually wanted to save other nations just through the nation of Israel. Not not through them in the sense of Jesus, uh, that we get saved through Jesus, but in the sense of of that they were to be his ambassadors. They were to be his priests. They were to go and to lead others to Christ. That was his design, but they didn't obey his commands. 
But the, the last one here is that they're to be a holy nation, a set-apart nation. This nation was specifically set apart, Israel, was specifically set apart to do the work of God. Today, it's right to say that we can have Christian nations, but not a holy one in the sense of what Israel was. Israel was a holy nation that they were set apart to do the work of God. America, when it was founded, it was a Christian nation. But it was not set apart to do the work of God. It didn't have that special prominence. There's an even difference there between Israel and the United States, even with all of the godliness that uh, America has had. And, and of course, now we've left that godliness, but in times past. This also, though, implies actions. Israel was to walk a certain way morally. Other nations were to follow the way that Israel walked. They were to set that pattern as being a kingdom of priests. But just as individuals were drawn to the morality of priests, uh, or, or should have been, or today we think of it a lot of ways here, uh, that we might draw a correlation that, that people follow the morality or the patterns of, of a pastor as the way that they walk in morality. Uh, so other nations were to go and to follow Israel. In that kind of a pattern. They were supposed to go and to pick up on their morality and to use that. And they'd be better off for that. In fact, mostly that's what the United States did when we first started. And God blessed us greatly because we followed in the morality that was given in the, in the Bible. And of course, that was the morality that Israel was supposed to walk by and supposed to be an example to other nations. The holiness to be set apart for God's work though, is really what this means here when it says a holy nation. They're to be set apart to do the work of God. That's the design of Israel. And this is why we do respect and we, we do love Israel and we do support Israel uh, in, in our theology. And it's one of the things that's important to go and to realize about Israel is that God is not done with them. They're his chosen people. He's not done with them. In fact, if we go and we look at even our eschatology, a lot of our eschatology is rooted in Daniel, the book of Daniel. And it's because God is saying, look, I'm not done with you. He hasn't fulfilled those 70 weeks. There's still seven, seven, uh, seven years left there, or those 77s is what it was referring to, um, and, and with the 70 weeks. But, but there's still seven left to go, one week left to go there with that. And we call that the Great Tribulation, which is specifically for Israel. Of course, the world gets judged during that time, too, but it's specifically a time of punishment for Israel that they might be drawn back to God. And we know from reading Revelation that there will be many that get drawn back, many Jews that get drawn back to God during that time. But the second thing I want us to see here today is Moses is a picture or a type is what we would call it. Uh, of Christ that doesn't make him a Christ, but it's the idea uh, that he's a picture of Christ here. It says, and I want to read two verses, verse three and verse 25 to point this out. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. So Moses went, uh, went down to the people and he spoke to them. Here we see, first of all, in verse 3, that he is going and he is talking on behalf of, to go and to talk on behalf of God 
to the people. And in verse 25, he's to go in to talk to the, to the, or excuse me, I get this backwards here. In verse 3, it was to go in to talk to the people on behalf of God. And in verse 25, he was to go in to talk to the, uh, to God, or to the people on behalf of God. And, and vice versa, the other way. He, he goes and he talks to both sides there. He's in between. And, and, and this speaks to two things, the ministry of a prophet and then also the ministry of a priest. A prophet here, if you can see this diagram, they represented God to the people. That's what they did. They went and they relayed God's messages to the people is what a prophet did. And, and this happened through different things. We often think of prophecy mostly as foretelling the idea of going and proclaiming something that's going to happen in the future. And then it comes to pass. That's generally what we think of with a prophet. But there's actually a lot more uh, that a prophet did with that. In fact, if you read the minor prophets... Uh, most of the minor prophets have to do with foretelling, and actually a lot of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah do too. So you have foretelling, which is predicting the future, and then foretelling, which is essentially uh, what we would go and say is, is a lot of preaching in the sense of going and saying, hey, you're wrong, repent. Hey, you're wrong, repent. Uh, that's what a, a prophet was to do. It's to go and to tell the future where God told him to tell the future, but then also to foretell, to call people to repentance. Uh, really, a prophet did had a, uh, preached with authority from God, but they represented God to the people. And then you have the priests. The priests represent the people to God. So they did this here, of course, through worship, uh, through sacrifices, and then also through praying was a major part of what a priest would do. So they would go on behalf of the people, and they would go to God, but a prophet is one who would go from God, on behalf of God, to the people. They would go and do those two different things. I hope you can uh, tell that through the, the diagram. I hope that makes that clear there. But Moses did both of these things here. Moses had a message from God, and he took it to the people. And this is ultimately what prophets did. And Moses also did what a priest did. Moses went before God on behalf of the people. Uh, we do this today as a convocation of priests, as we are priests. We have the individual priesthood of the believer, uh, and we pray for one another. But there were many times throughout Exodus here that we can see that God, or excuse me, that Moses goes before God with a message from the people, or even goes and says, Oh, Lord, don't destroy them. And he's speaking on behalf of the people. Now, why is this a picture or pointing towards Christ? Well, it's because Jesus is the ultimate prophet and priest. He is God. I'm, I'm speaking of, of doing what a, uh, the work of a prophet, not in position. Uh, but we do see here that he is the ultimate prophet and priest in that sense. In fact, let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and, uh, uh, and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For... <clears throat> For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, teaching of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here we see here that Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. Now he is God, 100% God and 100% man. And that's why he can be that mediator. We call that the hypostatic union of Christ. But this is why we pray in Jesus's name when we pray. Why we close our prayer in Jesus's name is because we are going through our mediator, Jesus Christ. We're going directly to the Father through Jesus Christ. He represents us before God. In Romans 8, 34, it says this, who is he who condemns? Uh, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, Jesus Christ prays for you. How cool is that? How cool is that? Also in Hebrews 7.25, it says something similar. It says, therefore, he's able to say to the uttermost who come to God through him. We have to go through Jesus. Since he is always lives to make intercession for them. Not only is Jesus praying for you, but he's always praying for you. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. He makes intercession for us. How does this intercession work? Well, first of all, uh, we know that there's a lot of courtroom uh, uh, language that's used throughout Scripture. And we know that Satan is called the great accuser, right? Well, it's as though Satan is a prosecutor and Satan comes up before the the courtroom of heaven and, and he goes and he says, Ah! I don't know if you saw your servant here, but but they claim to be your servant. You say they're your servant, but they sinned. Look at them. They're guilty. They're guilty. They're guilty. That's what Satan does. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes and he goes and he gives the defense for us. And he says, I object. They're not guilty. They're redeemed. For I have paid the price with my blood. And it's as though if God were to go and to look at the list of our crimes. That Satan goes and hands him. Jesus comes up and with his nail pierced hand goes and he places it upon the book. And when the father goes and looks down. And he's supposed to read our crimes. The only thing he can see is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he makes intercession for us. Constantly crying, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. For we are bought with a price. Therefore, we ought to glorify God. It's not just that Jesus represents us before God as redeemed But he also speaks. He also speaks. In fact, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is is just an awesome passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. 
right? We're talking about how prophets speak. He says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed an heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He speaks to us through his son. Well, how does he speak to us through his son? Well, let's go to John chapter one. John chapter one, verses one through five, and then also verse 14. But John chapter one, verses one through five, it says this. This is incredible, right? He, he used to speak in old times through the prophets, but now he speaks through the son. What is he talking about here? It goes back to John chapter five. Excuse me, John chapter one. John chapter one, verses one through five. It says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now I want to go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's, it's interesting to point out here that at the time when this was written in John, what is it referring to specifically within the historic context of Jesus, the word coming down as flesh? It's literally saying that it's like the Old Testament being manifested to us is literally what it's, what it's talking about there. Uh, and, and obviously, Jesus is God, but it's as though he is embodying the Old Testament and coming down uh, when he was born in the incarnation but, but it's interesting to go in to point out here, he, spoke in, he speaks in, in, in two different ways, how Jesus speaks. One was through the incarnation, right? He was literally here, literally here, spoke to mankind. The second way is that he's the word. So how does he speak to us? Right here. Jesus still speaks, right? Right here. What an incredible thing. It's the picture of a prophet and a priest. Moses was an inadequate one, a great one. I'm not trying to bash on Moses, but when the comparison is Christ, he's chopped liver. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. It's because he's the mediator between God and man. The only true mediator because he is God. 100% God and 100% man when he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. What an incredible thing to think about. The hypostatic union of Christ that he is both 100% God and 100% man. But I want to look at the holiness of God and really what, what, what it was called here for the children of Israel to do. Because there's a lot that we can glean from this. Because I think that so far here, we've, we've seen a lot of, of cool doctrine, uh, definitely here in the first two things. One is, what was the purpose for Israel? And of course, Israel ended up really failing because they said, hey, we're going to keep the covenant. And they didn't. They just didn't. And then God had to punish them and we're in the age of the Gentiles and things like that. But also... Then we're able to see this idea of, wow, a prophet and a priest, and that's who Jesus is, as he represents us before God and God before us. But there's a, I look at that, and I mean, there's definitely some application that to be taken home from that, but I, I really want to get into some, some real, real, real take-home application here. 
And the people's preparation for the holiness of God is really what we're going to see here. And in verses 10 through 15, we see what the people had to do to prepare for the appearing of God. In verses 10 through 15, and I'll go ahead and reread that for us in Exodus 19 to remind us, but it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of the people and you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch this base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned with a, or shot with an arrow. Whether a man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain and the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, be ready for the third day. Uh, be ready uh, for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Now we see here the different things that are, first of all, the first one was, was the washing of clothes, the washing of clothes. God told them to wash their clothes. Uh, they were going to be addressed by God. And so there was physical preparation that was needed. There was physical preparation that was needed. If we're going to go and, and meet a, a historic figure, we're probably not going to come in, in dirty clothes, right? We're probably going to go and wash our clothes. And that was something that, that was here, but there was something else that was being represented. Uh, and this was what the God was trying to get down to the people. The outward washing was a picture of the inward washing that was needed. They needed to go and to cleanse their hearts. And, and, and this is made clear throughout the other prophets, I think specifically in Joel, where he goes and he says, you need to rend your heart and not your garment. Because there were so many people in Israel who didn't go and get this idea that it's not just the outward stuff, but it is the inward stuff that goes and matters. And so they would go and they would get into, into sin and they'd be convicted of their sin. And so they'd go and they'd rent their garment and put on sackcloth and ashes. And, and they would go and, and bow down and say, oh, oh, it's me. But they wouldn't have real repentance. They'd never go and clean up the inside. And so Joel went and told them, he said, look, it's not your garments that you need to rent. It's your heart that needs to be rent. Anytime we go and we see this outward washing, I'm not saying that there's not something that, that's for the outward washing. There's definitely good things that come with outward washing. I'm definitely pro taking showers, right? Definitely pro cleaning our clothes. But ultimately, it is pointing to inward washing that we desperately need. Is ultimately what it's pointing towards. He also told them in verse 11 and verse 15 to be ready to be ready, and I think this is important to go and to look at because this is speaking of a mindset. This is speaking of a mindset. Now, I, I was known to do this when I, when I played basketball uh, in high school. I, I would do this all the time. It would be game day. It would be game day, and I would just go, go and, and, you know, the, the time leading up to the game, you know, the, the, the pregame, maybe we were uh, driving together or I was talking to my friends throughout the day or, or whatever it might be leading up to the game. I'd go and I'd look at them and I'd say, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And, and I would kind of annoy them. 
And I was asking them, are you ready? Now, 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 was I asking them, well, when it was in the morning and, you know, I was talking to my friend and our game was in the evening, was I saying, do you have your basketball jersey on and are you stretched out? No, that wasn't what I was asking them when I said, are you ready? I was asking them, do you have your mind right, ready to go and play this game? Or are you thinking of other things? I took basketball too serious, right, when I was in high school. Are you ready? Are you ready? And this is what Moses was telling them. Be ready. Be mentally prepared to meet God. Be mentally prepared. Be ready. The mind needed to be prepared and set apart for what was about to take place. The third thing we see that they did was they set bounds. Now, this is a very serious command as it came with a death penalty attached to it that if somebody went beyond these bounds, they were to be stoned or shot with an arrow. I mean, just very, very, very serious stuff we're talking about. But it was physical bounds, but it is also a picture of a circumspect life and intentional holiness. You won't be holy if you're not intentionally holy. You won't act and do good things if you're not intentionally setting those to do those things. If you don't set boundaries, you always go further than you ever thought you were going to go. Think of that with going to the store, right? One of the reasons why it's important to go to the grocery store with a list is because if you don't, you're going to come home with a whole shelf of Little Debbie's, right? And you're going to go and have a cart full of junk food and things like that. Maybe that's just me. But, but I have to have you know, a, a list when I go and I look at that. Because otherwise, I go beyond those things. The same is true in our life. If we don't set boundaries saying, I will not cross this line, what happens? We're going to go and cross that line. We're going to go and cross that line. We have to set boundaries in our life. They also abstained from sexual relations when it said, husbands basically don't go to your wives here, or don't touch your wives. In, in verse 15, and this was a special command, and it is limited, but this principle is seen in the New Testament also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, and the context is, we don't have time to go look at the context, but I'll give it to you really quick. It's the relationship between the, the husband and wife, and it goes and it says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because you lack because of your lack of self-control. It was a limited in time and it was for a specific purpose. So this isn't the doctrine of, of abstinence as, as some uh, people would go and, and preach and, and things like that. And there have been different cults that have started and things like, like that. That's not what this is talking about. But it is a specific time. A specific time and a specific thing. But what is the greater principle here? It's the principle of priority. On earth, your spouse should be number one. In all of your earthly relationships... If you're married, your spouse should be the number one relationship. Today, in today's day and age, we, we see something that, that's, that's totally different. That's totally different. We go and we hear that your child should be number one. And then, of course, we see the breakdown of marriages a lot of times because of these kind of things. But the reality of it is, is that the best way to love your children is to love your spouse. That's the best way to love your spouse rightly, then you're going to love your children rightly. And that means you have to put your spouse in a higher priority than even your children or even your friends. You know, there's a lot of times uh, we've, Sarah and I have had the privilege of going and getting to 
counsel a lot of young, uh, young couples. I've been able to do premarital counseling a number of different times and things like that. People who are looking towards getting married. And one problem that we've been able to identify and see, especially in young marriages, is a lot of times, yes, the, the two, they come together. But in reality here, that's not their best friend. They have their little best friend over here. Who, who is just like, oh, hey, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times this is a struggle for the woman. It's my, my girlfriends over here, my friends, my best friend over here. And then they still try to bring their best friend there and leave them in that relationship of best friend. No, 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 no. If you're married, your spouse is number one. They're your, your number one relationship on this earth. But God should be above your spouse, Right? Husbands, love your wives. But then it says this in Luke 14, 6. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that. What does it mean? It doesn't mean, husband, you go up and you wake up in the morning and you kick your wife in the shin and say, ah, I hate you because God told me to hate you. That's, that's not what it means. What it means is that our number one priority is God. And if we ever had to choose between God and our spouse, God and our children, God and our father and our mother, God and whoever it may be, that our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate alliance is to God. It's not the idea of hate in the general sense. It's the hate of comparison. You know, I love, I love bacon. I'll just admit it. But if you had to tell me, you can either go and, and save your wife's life, or you can have bacon for the rest of your life. But if you choose to save your wife's life, you can never eat bacon again. I don't even have to think about it. I'm going to choose my wife. 100% of the time, why? It's because I love my wife. And in the comparison of my love for my wife, I hate bacon. And that's the idea here. When God says to go and to hate your spouse and even hate yourself and to hate others. It's, it's not that we're actually hating them. It's that we're loving God most. It's a comparison. This drives home where God should stand in priority in our life with this idea of those three days of abstinence that they called for for the husband to abstain from his wife. Now, there are a lot of principles here that can help us prepare and get the most out of church. I, I thought this was kind of interesting when I was going through these four principles. And I think we can apply these four principles, at least indirectly, here to church, or at least the principles that are, are behind the stated commands. The first one is, is physical preparation, the whole washing of clothes, right? Uh, do you know how many people miss church on Sunday because of stupid decisions on Saturday, Right? I mean, trust me, as a pastor, you don't know how many times I've heard it. Oh, sorry, this happened on Saturday, or I chose to do this on Saturday. And I'm going, well, that was a dumb decision. <laughs> that was a dumb decision, because we should be physically prepared to come to church. 
We should be physically prepared to come to church. It's not good if, if, if you go out and on, on Saturday you decide to go out and hang out outside all day and to, to, to go have fun. You might be doing a productive, good thing and doing work, but you chose not to wear sunscreen and you get incredibly blistered and burnt. And you wake up on Sunday morning and you go, oh, I can't get out of bed. That was a dumb decision on your part. You weren't preparing for Sunday. You weren't physically preparing for Sunday. God ought to have more priority, right? Also have inner preparation. You want to get the most out of church on Sunday, that means we need to meet with God privately the other six days. Really should do all days, all seven days. You should have devotions. But you know, some people, they, they want to go and they want to starve themselves all week from God's word and think that they're going to go and, and be able to, to eat a steak on Sunday. But the reality of it is, is that their stomach has shrunk so much that they can barely eat any real food, right? Any real spiritual food. You want to go and, 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 and get the most out of Sunday? Have good devotions Monday through Saturday. The second one is, is a ready mindset, right? The people uh, there were to be ready. They were to be ready. Uh, and in today's day and age, people minimize the effectiveness of preaching because their minds are on a football game or a list of chores or something else. They didn't prepare their mind. Don't let the busyness of life follow you into this sanctuary. Don't let that happen. Have a prepared mind. The next one was, is, is uh, set boundaries, right? They're to set boundaries. You know, there are a couple different things that I, I think of with setting boundaries, right? Uh, one is, is our calendar. The other one is in our conduct. You, you know, some people go and they, they treat Sunday like it's this arbitrary day of, of I can go and do extra things and go and do other things. And if, if there's a better deal that comes along, well, I'm going to go and choose that. Well, how is God being Lord of your calendar? If you're going to go and choose other things over God, set boundaries, set boundaries. I understand there are times where, where we have to miss church. That, that's understandable. I'm not saying that we have to be in church every single, uh, every single Sunday, but we ought to strive for it. We ought not going to be flippant about those kind of things. It's something important. Christ died for the church. Sorry, I'm reminded of a meme that it says here, it's, it's, the, it's the, the girl pointing and the cat back kind of a thing. I don't know if you've seen that meme. And it's a dialogue and it's the, the girl kind of yelling at the cat and, and, and she says, you know, oh, I die for my faith. And the cat responds back, you won't go to church when it rains. Well, I not have that kind of a mindset. We ought to live for Christ. Our conduct we also ought to set balance in our conduct. Set moral boundaries. Sin can get in the way of getting the most out of church in your life for sure. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Right? Psalm 66, 18. If we have undealt with sin, it's going to hinder our relationship with God and that's going to hinder what happens on Sunday. And every other day for that matter. The fourth one there, they're to abstain from their wives there here, but this is, this is a more broader principle. Have the right priority in our life. 
People come to church for different reasons. Maybe it's to please a spouse. Maybe it's to find a spouse. Maybe it's to meet up with friends. Maybe it's to have fun. Maybe it's to be entertained. It could be for a number of different reasons why we would come to church. But let your reason be to come to church to know God and to know him more. That ought to be our reason to come to church, a pursuit and obedience to God. I also want us to look at one more thing here, specifically with the holiness of Israel that they were called to have and to be holy. They used a couple different words. One was consecrate in verses 10 and also verse 22, and then also sanctify in verse 14. Now, this is actually the same Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word, and it's a verb, and it means to be set apart, to be holy, to consecrate, and to dedicate. It's an action of dedicated availability and agreement to God. I think that's one of the best ways that we could describe holiness. An action of dedicated availability and agreement to God. I believe we should strive for this in our life. That was incredible here. There's a lot we could go and to talk about and to, to get into. We don't have time today looking up the clock. That, that when they came before God, after they'd done this preparation in their life, God appeared, right? There was what was fire. He came in fire and there was a cloud and it was what was a thundering voice and all this kind of stuff. It was incredible. And it was proof to them that this God is real. It was also proof to them of something important that it wasn't Moses who was using witchcraft or something like that, but it was actually a God that was behind Moses. Because remember, God said that, that I'm going to use you and Aaron, Moses, to be like a God and his prophet before Pharaoh. God needed to have this appearance. He needed to have this appearance to convince his people that it's not Moses you follow, it's me you follow. Ultimately, and you ought to follow Moses as long as Moses is following me. And this sets us up, this idea of holiness, really for next week, because what is next week in Exodus chapter 20, where then we're going to go and take a break after we finish Exodus chapter 20. But what, what is Exodus chapter 20? It's the Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? They're the moral law or the heart of the moral law. These Ten Commandments are, are still in effect today. We're, we're always to obey them. God hasn't changed his morality. It's an expression of who he has always been and who he will always be because what's right yesterday will be right tomorrow. What was right a thousand years ago will be right a thousand years from today. What was right at the beginning of time will be right in eternity future. And what was wrong will be wrong then and will be wrong in eternity future. So how do we live holy? Well, we have a consecrated and sanctified life. That means we should have actions, an action of dedicated availability and agreement to God. So today I want to conclude. And I just want to ask us that question. Are we actively dedicating our availability and our agreement to God? Are we saying, God, you're right, and I'm available to you for whatever you would have me to do? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for this example in Exodus 19 of what happened, 
when you revealed yourself to the people of Israel. And Lord, we we thank you that you are holy and because you are holy, we ought to have holiness in our life. We ought to be sanctified. We ought to be set apart for you. And Lord, we would just pray today that we would be actively available and in agreement with you. Father, we pray that that might be our, our heart's cry, that in every area of our life, because Father, we thank you that you didn't just give us a book that tells us how to prepare to, to die, but Father, it actually tells us how to live. And Lord, I pray that every area of our life, that we might go and we might be actively available to you, and Lord, that we might be actively agreeing with you in every area of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.